What up, podcast listeners? We're back, and I'm hanging out with Jonathan DePotter on another amazing episode of the Matt Baxter Show. Jonathan is just wildly fascinating, wildly interesting, and wildly brilliant, and I just have really, really, really enjoyed our time. I could not have met a more kind, down-to-earth, fascinating man who is leading some of the most uh, uh, amazing uh, retreats out there in the world. So if you're interested in following along with plant-based medicine, I would highly encourage you to follow Jonathan DePotter's work, Behold Retreats, and everything that they have going on around the world. Uh, Jonathan uh, is, is talking all around the conversation around consciousness, not only not, not only conversations related to uh, going on you know, an, a, an amazing retreat and, and going through the plant-based medicine you know, process side of things, but also everything from diet, healthier living, uh, yoga, meditation, so many things that just helps you all around as a person, as a human being. I've just been really, really, really fascinated by Jonathan, the work that he's putting out. And I just have just, just loved getting to know him more and more. And on this episode, he dives in. He also addresses some of maybe the myths or some of the misconceptions around plant-based medicine on this episode as well, too. And so if this is something that you're interested in learning more about, I would highly, highly, highly encourage you to listen to this episode and follow along everything Jonathan DePotter is doing. Jonathan, thank you so much for the man that you are. And thank you, thank you, thank you for being a guest on this episode. I hope everybody else enjoys it just as much as I did. Jonathan, thanks for being a guest on this podcast. Great to be here, Matt. I'm excited to chat. Where in the world are you recording from? I am in Koh Penang in Thailand, which is a small little island that's uh, known for yoga and kind of having a conscious community here on the island. So you just mentioned uh, it's known for yoga. I think you just got off of a fresh yoga class, stretched out, feeling good. Yeah, feeling feeling really amazing. Uh, the yoga teacher we've got here is just she's incredible, and so you know, it's something that never actually stuck for me. I, I'd been to probably fifty different yoga classes over the years, but this teacher is really onto something different. So it's really really a lot of fun. Um, is yoga for you a regular, you know, workout part of the routine, part of the mindset, part of the life? What what what, what does yoga mean to you? Yeah, it's you know, it's it's like I said, it's still relatively new to me. Um, but it's it's about really connecting with your body in a different way. And I think, um, you know, we're going to speak a little bit more about plant medicine and, and psychedelics later, but it's it's really about embodiment and really enjoying the human experience. And so, you know, of course, that that takes many different aspects, the physical, the mental, emotional and, and the spiritual. Um, and so for me, yoga has been really a way to begin to heal my body um, as much as anything, to be honest. You know, I spent better part of 15 years of my career in, in consulting. And so, you know, hunched over a laptop, long hours, and that's just not how we were meant to live. And so, you know, my, my hips were always very tight. I've got bad posture historically and you know, all of those sorts of things that kind of come from a modern Western life. And so yoga for me has really represented a, a significant part of my healing journey over the past year. So it's interesting you say that yoga is like more of a healing piece to you. So would you consider yoga and, and what you do it as, is, is it a community thing? It is a, you know, is it a personal you know, you're by yourself, you just happen to be with others. I mean, I know the default probably right answer is, oh, I love the community component to it. But like, what keeps you doing it regularly? Is it something that you enjoy the community component? Or is it really just like individual healing, individual focus, obviously, the physical benefits of what yoga is like, what walk me through that? 
Yeah, yeah, that's so funny that you asked that. It's um, you know, this community here is very liberal. Um, perhaps so liberal that like they've actually begun to correct some of their overly liberal behavior. So it's not, not the, the self-feeding liberal mindset. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think there's very few places in the world that have gone so liberal that they've gone like, okay, we've, we've really done too, we've gone too far here. We got to start correcting. Yeah, yeah. But I think this might be one of them. So, so in that regard, I don't really kind of connect with the community vibe so much. And so actually my girlfriend and I just really, we rock in a, l- a few minutes early um, to the yoga class. We set up our mats. We you know start our meditation. Uh, and then we're, we're out the door, like just quick. So it's really get in there, enjoy the yoga experience, which is, you know, very immersive and then, and then move on with our days. But, um, you know, I, I think there are a lot of people who, who get into yoga because of the community aspect. It's just not been a, not really been a thing for us. I love that. Um, yeah, I've, I've always been curious, like, so I, uh, have had moments of my life where fitness was, uh, you know, very important stretching, waking up early, cardio, weightlifting. I mean, I, I default towards being super lazy when it comes to working out. Like I like getting in, doing some weights and then kind of being done anything that's more than like 10 minutes straight of one consistent workout. I get really lazy with. And so I will never be the person who admits I love the workout community. Like, no, working out for me is purely selfish. Like it's just for me. And, uh, that's that, but I know some people that that means a lot to, I just, I, I, I can't even begin to empathize with that, but I've always been curious of like, I feel like yoga admittedly kind of, you know, generalizing seems like a community focus. So just, it, it's, it, it's good to hear that somebody's like, yep, I want to get in, get the workout in, you know, feel like it, it, it does what it, you know, is supposed to do for my, myself and that's that. So anyways, good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, and it's, it's a funny one because I can, I can sense that there's kind of a little bit of from the, from the class, there's like, Oh, you never stay in chat, but I'm just like, okay, well have a great day. I got things to do and, uh, have a, have yeah, a great yeah, day. Yeah. You yep. <laughs> Thank you for this. And this was awesome. And, uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All exactly. right. So give me, give me, give me the load on, give me the life story. Oh boy where to start. So I know really, really um, easy. Everybody loves just with a blank canvas, start wherever you need to. And we'll go from there. Yeah. So, um, grew up in Hawaii, uh, super hippie parents, um, which led me to reject anything that looked and smelt like spirituality and yoga and beaded necklaces and, you know, people in groups around a fire very early in life. Um, cause I just didn't, I didn't resonate with it. And, um, you know, growing up in, uh, in, in the environment in Hawaii, there's also a lot of um, negative substance use, you know, so I really went down the other path. I got really into video games quite young. Computer drew me in and um, I really kind of got drawn towards the more kind of quote unquote corporate world. Um, and so finished high school in Hawaii and then subsequently I decided to move to New Zealand. I moved there because um, university was just so much cheaper than it was in the U.S. I was looking at going to USC and it looked like it was going to cost you about you know, 300 grand for four years. And by comparison, at the time, New Zealand looked like it was going to cost me about 40 grand over three years for a degree. So it was kind of a bit of a no brainer. And, you know, the waves are pretty good in New Zealand. So I moved down there uh, when I was 17 and just loved it. You know, it's such a beautiful country, quite progressive, but um, still got its head on its shoulders and um and uh, yeah, so so I moved there and my parents actually, you know, subsequently followed me down uh, and I ended up staying in New Zealand 10 years. Um, really, I stayed there that long so I could help my parents immigrate. And so I went into the corporate world, started working in strategy, 
um, and had a great opportunity after 10 years in New Zealand to move to Hong Kong. So I moved into management consulting, um, started working for Accenture Hong Kong, and over the course of about five years there, grew the team to about uh, 120 for one of the major global telecommunications providers. Um, And about five years into my time in Hong Kong, I... I just look, I remember looking at myself in the mirror and thinking, is this it? You know, I was an atheist at the time. Um, I was working like a dog, uh, probably in the office by about 7 a.m. most days and leaving the office by 10 p.m., 11 p.m., sometimes even later than that, working on the weekends. And I just remember looking at myself one day in the mirror and going, is, is this it? And, um, you know, I was, they were dangling the partner promotion for me there at Accenture. And I was just kind of like, I don't know. I got to, I got to, I got to recalibrate. So I took a year off and, um, as part of that year wound up at an ayahuasca retreat in Peru. Uh, and that was about five years ago now. Uh, and that really blew open a whole set of new doors for me. Uh, it opened the door to spirituality. It helped me, you know, gave me a lot of life lessons, um, and has been what ultimately guided me to now launching behold retreats. You know, there's such a deep and sensitive space that I needed to spend about five years learning about plant medicine and psychedelics, um, doing my own work, but also just learning about the science and, you know, beginning to facilitate retreats for friends, et cetera, to really understand the space in a deeper way, because, um, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of risk and a lot of challenges, uh, in this line of work. So let's, let's go back to the Hawaii, uh, growing up for a hot second. So you mentioned that like substance, uh, was a hot, uh, or substance abuse was a regular thing. Is that, like, I mean, is this high schoolers, uh, party drugs? Is this adults, you know, regular use? Was this like just the culture? Was this people who, you know, what I, I guess walk me through a bit of like what substance abuse meant on an island like that? Because, I mean, I, I think traditionally, and I'm going to make the assumption that a lot of people view Hawaii that I as a traditional Westerner would is it's vacation, beautiful, aloha, it's fantastic. It's, you know, no worries sort of thing. But to actually hear somebody say, you know, there's actually some dark sides of that. I'd love your, uh, whatever you're comfortable sharing on that. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, as you say, Hawaii is such an incredible and beautiful place. I mean, it's blessed, right? And absolutely blessed from uh, nature. It's paradise. Um, but it's it's got a darker side to it. Absolutely. And so, you know, growing up there, I was actually I was bullied a lot, like a lot. I was one of the very few white kids in school. And, you know, coming from hippie parents, you know, it just means that I wasn't dressed in quite the same way as uh, what the cool kids were looking like in school. So, you know, I took I took I took a bit on the chin uh, growing up. But, um, but yeah, there's, you know, a lot of my friends actually started smoking weed at like age 10 or 11, uh, which is so unbelievably young. Right. Um, and you know, a lot of the kids' parents were drinking a lot, right. A lot of, um, pretty heavy alcohol abuse, uh, in Hawaii. And then, you know, the domestic violence and, and worse, um, comes from that as so, well. So, so real, real quick you know, on that, and, and I, I don't mean to push you too much on this, but like, why do you think that is, is that, I mean, there's like this, this is again, I'm, I'm going to ask kind of some of the most basic dumb questions is that, um, mm-hmm. you know, there's only so much to do on a small Island. Is there, you know, the outside perspective of culture influences people and, you know, everybody thinks it's a perfect place, but you know, at the end of the day, it's not, I mean, what, what, do, what do you think like had made that a regular, I mean, just some of the dark side, what, what do you think made that be so? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, Hawaii's history isn't all sunshine and lollipops, right? I, mean, I would imagine I mean, that. I, I would imagine Westerners have totally fabricated what it actually is. So I, I get that. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, the the Hawaiian population was about 90% wiped out by, um, you know, by various uh, sicknesses when white people turned up. Uh, and then, you know, as it was kind of colonized first by the British and then subsequently taken over by the Americans, they had to br- bring in import labor from Japan, the Philippines, Portugal, um, other, you know, South Pacific islands. And so those people were kind of brought in as, as quote unquote, cheap labor. Um, and, you know, there's, there's not a great deal of hope, I think, actually, in Hawaii. You know, what people have seen say, I mean, this, this kind of applies to America more broadly, but, you know, what people have seen say since the 60s and 70s is that the cost of living just continues to rise and rise and rise. And there's just fundamentally, there's not that many jobs in Hawaii that can support the cost of living, right? So you've kind of got these two worlds. On one side of the island, you've got people driving, you know, their convertible Camaros around the island and having the two-week honeymoon of their lives and staying in this beautiful four or five-star resort. And on the other side of the island, you've got people that are really struggling to make ends meet. They know that the land that may have been passed to them through the generations is worth so much money and people are, you know, selling up in large amounts and moving to Utah and Arizona. It's actually kind of like, quote, unquote, Hawaiian settlements, you know, of people who have been economically displaced in places like that. And it's just, you know, that sort of dynamic whereby you're living eight, 10 people under a single roof and struggling to make ends meet while you're seeing people, you know, have the time of their lives on the other side of the island where it's all, you know, sunshine and five-star resorts and, and uh, Mai Tais on by sunset. It's just, you know, I think it, it kind of, it wears people down. Over yeah, time. it makes sense. I mean, I, I've done, um, I did a little mission work in uh, Jamaica and I mean, similar sort of thing. You've got the Jamaican, you know, resorts and you've got some of the most beautiful places in the planet and no worries for two weeks out of the year, but the people living there and not, not all. And I I don't want to overly generalize, but there's a lot of suffering there and pain there. And so I I get that. Um, Yeah. So anyways, uh, it's, it's just a (laughs) uh, paradise is typically not paradise. It's, it may be for a short time or a brief period of time, but that doesn't necessarily mean it is all the time. So anyways, that's unique perspective. Um, Real quick on that. So uh, you mentioned that that wasn't really attractive to you. And as a, a young man myself, I've gotten caught up in uh, 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 so, some, some of the bad things in life that I probably shouldn't get caught up in. And so what, what ultimately drove you away from the party life, quote unquote, and not necessarily meaning party life in a good way, but the kind of the wild side and the negatives to video games and learning? And what, 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 what do you think separated that? Um, you know, if I'm to be honest, I think part of it was that I just wasn't one of the cool kids. Um, it's not always a bad thing, just be blunt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that probably did play a role in, um, you know, the, and, but at the same time, like I did have opportunities to participate in that sort of a thing. And I don't know, I think, I think it's so easy to follow the group, right? And I think that's, Something that sits within me and I'm fortunate, I'm, I'm grateful for is that if everyone's doing something, then really look carefully at why that's the case. Um, and, and so, yeah, for me, it just never really had an appeal. You know, I think honestly, my my parents were um, they smoked weed until I was about seven and then just basically stopped like cold turkey. And I remember I didn't really enjoy the smell of it. Um, and I think that probably what also played a role you mean? as well. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, and and I don't know, I just I, I remember visiting those friends when you would go and visit those friends where, you know, weed and alcohol was a daily a daily occurrence. There was just a certain feeling in their house that was fundamentally different from our house. Right. It, like our place just felt 
the energy just felt cleaner in the house relative to kind of the the smoke hanging from the walls that uh, that, that that we've all witnessed before, you know. I like that. I appreciate that. And uh, so you, the the move from Hawaii to Thailand was predominantly related to like educational costs. Yeah. So I went from Hawaii to Oh, sorry, New sorry. I'm sorry. Hong New Zealand. Kong. I meant to say New Zealand. Yep, 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 yep. No worries. And, and so no you, worries. Made, yeah, you made was, that jump. What What part of New Zealand? I moved to Auckland, which is um, the big the big city there. One one million population. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so you know, you went from like classic, unbeautiful, terrible Hawaii to like you know the the next most unbeautiful place in the world, New Zealand. So congratulations <laughs> for picking some of the two most awesome places in the world. So so tell me about New Zealand when you first arrived. What was that like? Um, I couldn't understand the people, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, it was it was just on the it was just after Lord of the Rings had come out, actually. Um, and so New Zealand was on a real uptick. Um, and I think they had also just around that time, they had also just won the America's Cup, uh, which was a big, big one for them. New, New Zealand's such a huge sailing country. Um, I think one in three people in New Zealand own a boat, which is pretty yeah, incredible. Not-, not necessarily a big one, but. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, um, people there are so friendly. Um, and it was, you know, it was for me, it was a big shift because I was a little, little Hawaii country boy. Um, and so moving into a city of population was with, of 1 million was like, wow, overwhelming. Um, but, um, but you know, people really nice. It's also got a very strong relationship with the South Pacific Islanders, right? Auckland itself has actually got the largest, um, population of South Pacific Islanders, I think anywhere in the world. Um, it's, it's got a massive South Pacific Island population. And so it, it did, in many ways, it felt like home, but in many ways, it felt quite different as well. Love that. So what led from, I mean, obviously, you've got the hippie parents to probably non-traditional US education to then you get into like basically corporate America, which is what would be considered probably a traditional US path. Um, what, 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 what was that journey like? How did that happen? Yeah. So, you know, like, like so many others, I, I finished my university studies. I was, um, I did computer science and really had no idea about what the real world had in store for me. And so I took a contracting role initially as a programmer, but, um, I didn't really stick to that for very long. And, uh, I had a, a great beer with, um, with one of the gentlemen who was, just incoming to lead the strategy team at this uh, large telecommunications company. And lo and behold, he's like, well, I said, I don't know anything about strategy. He said, don't worry, I'll show you. Um, and so, you know, on the back of really one conversation, uh, I, I went to work for him in a strategy capacity uh, and ended up working for him on and off for about 10 years. And, you know, we still speak regularly. So he's been an incredible uh, mentor for me. And that's been, you know, I've been so blessed by having, you know, a handful of mentors that have really taken the time and energy to show me the ropes and, and tell me what they know and, and allowed me to, you know, spread my wings and protected me in those moments when uh, I was overextended. So that's been, that's been a real blessing for me. And, um, and yeah, so I went into this telecommunications firm and was doing all sorts of, you know, launching a new mobile company and, uh, um, all sorts of exciting projects like that. And really, you know, was really kind of taking in the the corporate world. So what did, I mean, this is more talking biz, business jargon for a hot second. What did strategy mean to you at the time? Yeah, it was, it was really at the time, you know, strategy, 
meant very different things than it does today. We were still doing things like five-year plans in the business world, which today is, you know, patently insane. <laughs> I was, I was about to say, uh, you're talking to a startup founder and I'm talking about like, you know, uh, this afternoon plans. So, yep, thank you. <laughs> so sh- please, please show me your ways. Yep, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, I, and, I, and I think, absolutely. And I think there's, um, you know, like you and I are in the startup world and it's, if if you're thinking five years out, it's like you're really underestimating the potential for the world to shift under under your you know under underneath you. So um, for us, it was um, it was it was looking longer term and really thinking about um, yeah what's you know what's the overall direction of the industry, what are the trends, trying to apply various strategic frameworks um, to um, to the thinking. I like that a lot. So um, basically, you rose to the top. Uh, corporate world and you had a fast track in your career. Um, so based upon the work that you do now, I know this is impossible to remove, but if you were to like the last day be- be- before you like stopped working corporate, what do you think you were really, really good at that helped you like strategically work really well in the business world? Does that question make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. And um, I would I would add to um, I would I would clarify to say that I, I didn't necessarily rise to the top, but I drafted well. Um, so I had incredible mentors who created great space for me. And uh, that that was definitely a part of the part. Of yes, the that's a humble. Um, that's a humble answer. But I'm going to push you to say that usually those leaders see something in somebody. And most of the time, if multiple people are seeing something, uh, they're not going to be wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's that's probably fair. And I think, you know, for me, um, for me, doing it, doing it right, you know, um, I think I was I was taught well that you want to get out there, you want to gather the facts, and then you want to look at them relatively objectively without any sort of bias and think about what the various narratives are and then really test those various narratives to see whether there might be truth to them and then to look for what other supporting evidence might be out there in order to, you know, f- further bolster or, or contradict that narrative. And so, you know, executives are super poor, uh, time poor, right? Um, they're super time poor. And so what they're looking for is people who can very quickly and succinctly bring them to a place that of new understanding uh, for for their business or um, and and so you know I think that's probably what I was able to bring to the table is um, to find these types of narratives that were of high value to the organization uh, and then to align a collective around that so that we could move forward together. I think that was probably you know something that something that I brought. Yeah, to the I love table. that. So, what ultimately do you think? And I, I think I may be putting words in your mouth, but it sounds like burnout was what happened, or at least uh, what's the point kind of question that I think uh, so many people ask. Um, but w- what what do you think made you ask that or feel that or lean towards that? Yeah, you know, my, my five years in Hong Kong, I mean, Hong Kong is such a fast paced city. You know, I always say to people, you know, New York's great, but check out yeah, Hong yeah. Kong. Um, um, by the way, I'm, I'm booking my plane <laughs> ticket whenever I'm allowed. So we're going to hang out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, the but the downside of that is that I was so immersed right in uh, in the day to day. Like I shared, I was I was working pretty long hours. I had pretty demanding clients. The work was pretty complex. 
Um, and so what I found was that my emotional state was very much tied to my work. Right. Um, and so if I was, if I was killing it at work and landing new deals and new clients and I was feeling pretty good, but on the other hand, if it was, you know, up until 4am doing, you know, complex data migration spreadsheets, then, uh, you know, I was down and out and usually externalizing a lot of that. Right. So rather than, uh, seeing the mistakes that I had made, I was, I was quick to perhaps put blame or put the problem, uh, in other places. Whereas of course, you know, the problem is always within. And so, you know, after four or five years of being on that cycle of working hard and then, you know, honestly, I began to drink uh, pretty heavily in uh, in Hong Kong. I was, you know, on a Friday or Saturday night after a long week at work, you kind of, uh, you tend to have a pretty, pretty big evenings. Um, and so I just was kind of on that treadmill. And after five years, I just kind of recognized that it wasn't, it wasn't sustainable and it wasn't really like there just had to be more to life. <laughs> so true. It's so true. So what, um, so, so I guess, you know, if, if you feel like there's any, uh, any gaps in the story of going from corporate to all of a sudden taking the year off, um, feel free to fill them in. But I mean, I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a pretty big leap going from corporate, amazing job, partner dangling in front of you to taking a year off, which is amazing and good for you. But then all of a sudden going on an ayahuasca retreat that, that those, sort of one after the next after the next is kind of a big jump. So was that just something you had always wanted? You had researched, somebody guided you to? How, how, did, how did that happen? And also, it may be worth uh, explaining to the audience what an ayahuasca retreat means. Yeah, sure. You know, I've actually never thought about it that way before, Matt. And what's come to me immediately is that I actually ran out of teachers that I really respected in the corporate world. And I think that's a large part of what, um, what, you know, what played a role in me taking that year off is, you know, I was, I was in Accenture and, um, you know, Accenture is a great company. It's a huge company. Um, but I had been working for these people that I had known and trusted for so long. And so as they moved on into bigger roles in other companies, I just kind of looked around at, you know, the various people, you know, we had 11,000 people in greater China at the time. Um, and I just, I just didn't really have that mentor that really I resonated with. And I felt like my next growth curve was, was there with uh, him or her. And so that was, I think, part of the, part of the trigger to like really recalibrate and, um, and take that year off. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I really didn't know what I wanted from the year off, if I'm to be perfectly honest. Like if I was to take a quote unquote a year off again now, I would do it very differently than I did there. But I really started in the south down in Patagonia and just took six weeks hiking around the mountains there, you know, no cell phone, which was just. Yeah, like, again, you know, terrible place and, to pick, you know. Nice. Nicely done. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Whatever, man. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was so funny that down there, there's so many Americans, right? And um, my really? word. I like, actually had no was, idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's, uh, it's, it was like couples on honeymoon that had loaded up on 70 or 80 pounds and, you know, $6,000 of North Face gear. <laughs> I was about to say, that's so true. That's the, uh, so I, I, I live in West Michigan where there's definitely some people who, Every West, every person from West Michigan kind of wishes they were from Colorado. So they all wear high end Patagonia stuff, <laughs> pretending they're outdoorsy. And their biggest like outdoors experience is going and taking the, their golden retriever for a walk, sort of thing. So, and again, I say that owning a golden retriever and also wearing a Patagonia jacket as I speak. So take that all with a grain of salt. But that's a very <laughs> common trend. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I'll be the first one. I'm probably in that camp. But with that being said, <laughs> you know the Patag- Yeah, the, so the Patagonia and the North Face gear was in was in full flow down there in uh, in Patagonia, and uh, but it was it was so funny because people just like really overloaded themselves with gear, uh, and you could tell there was a lot of um, uh, a lot of uh, disharmony in the in the marriage. <laughs> Because it was, you know, these are these are pretty long hikes, and um, to do them with seventy or eighty pounds of gear, like just way too much gear on your on your back, is uh, is just no fun. Um, and so I was doing, you know, I was doing my best to do a little bit of trail running to keep it a little bit lighter, do less, but do do more in those few days where um, where I was trying to cover ground. And so that was that was a lot of fun. And then yeah, I just I, I really just allowed open space, and so I took my time. I didn't really have an agenda, you know, working my way north through you know, Argentina, Uruguay, Brazil, et cetera. And um, I just, I just kind of allowed the things that filled the space to fill the space. And, um, and then I had, you know, some friends came and joined me for, for various legs along the trip, you know? And so about, I guess it was about six or seven months into the journey, um, two friends came and, uh, and they said, you know, we're going to come and join you in Peru. And wouldn't it be great to do an ayahuasca retreat as part of that? And, you know, I'd always been kind of, quote, unquote, anti-substance. Um, you know, I mentioned that I was, I was drinking quite a bit in Hong Kong. But um, at that point, I remembered that 10 years prior, a friend of mine um, from New Zealand, she had actually gone on one of these ayahuasca retreats. And she had left kind of a little bit depressed and timid and kind of very introverted. You know, unfortunately, she'd had a very traumatic childhood. Hold on, real real quick, she, she had out. left one of those retreats or she had left to go on one of those retreats in that state? She had left to go to one of those retreats in that okay, state. Okay, cool. Yeah. And she came back. And she actually did a one-month retreat, which was, I was like, yeah, wow. Cool. Um, and um, she came back completely transformed. So she had actually, the one-month retreat, they start with really low dose, and then you work up. So you get really a chance to kind of take a softly, softly approach with the medicine. And so she came back, and she was like, a completely different person. She was motivated. She was, um, you know, organizing picnics in the park and surfing and rock climbing. And I was like, wow, who is Sophie? This is a completely different person. And so, you know, that was something that for me at the time, it kind of registered in the back of my mind. But I, I, I was like, this doesn't really align with the just say no narrative that we get all we all get taught in school. And this doesn't really align with what I saw, you know, growing up in Hawaii. So that kind of did did make an impression on me. And so when my friend said this, I was like, ah, yes, Let's let's do this. And so the three of us went to um, went to a retreat outside of Cusco um, in what's uh, what's called the Sacred Valley, which is there next to Machu Picchu. Just an incredible place. So when you walked into this experience, um, well, hold on, I, I got to back up for a second. Uh, so so you're in Argentina, and you kind of alluded to you didn't have that mu- uh, that many expectations on your trip. Um, you're however long on your trip, you're hiking, you're making fun of Americans who are overly packed and too much Patagonia gear, and your friends join you in that whole bit. But you know, at that point, um, you're however long into your sort of sabbatical. Are you looking for something at the time? Like not not physically and but more in like who you are. Are you is there something you're seeking, desiring, looking for now that you kind of get halfway into the trip? And again, let's talk pre-ayahuasca retreat. Yeah. Does that um, make sense? It does. It makes sense. I you know, it was it was very interesting because there was 
I was I was on a learning curve, right? I was learning Spanish. Um, I was uh, re- I was enjoying reading again a lot, which I hadn't really had the opportunity to do for so many years. Um, but it, it, I would I would probably describe it as a bit of decompression. Um, you know, I I was really enjoying not working. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I had really, I had really, I'd really gone for it for the the years prior, and so yeah, it was really just. Um, and there's some there's some incredible things to see, um, and and I kind of you know to some extent I actually burned out a little bit waking up and going and looking at something beautiful, and then um, you know going back to the hotel or whatever and going to sleep, um, and so it was about probably four or five months into that that I was kind of like, okay. I get it. Yeah. Done this now. Um, had that same conversation over and over again. Uh, now just like, uh, okay, so now I'm going to go meet my friends in Peru. So I was, I was, you know, perhaps even to some extent, a little bit more lost, um, four or five months into it than I was, uh, at the start of the journey, to be honest. Yeah. And, and, uh, that just so you know, that's not what I was looking for, but I appreciate you answering that vulnerably. That's, uh, and also I kind of wonder, you know, you mentioned, uh, five months in of waking up and looking at beautiful things. I, I, I'd be curious if some of the locals in Hawaii feel that way or the locals in Jamaica, the, par- the paradise kind of fades out a little bit and you're kind of wondering, okay, there's more to the soul than just looking at beautiful places. So anyways, but, um, so, uh, you find this journey to begin the ayahuasca retreat, uh, knowing that and, and I, I, I'm going to draw a couple conclusions, but knowing that drinking and substance has been at least around, like you've been, you've been aware about it, uh, at least of the substance abuse. And you also knew that like the drinking culture is a thing and there was more to life than, you know, <laughs> drinking for the weekend. So uh, again, extreme leap uh, to ayahuasca. What, I mean, was it, pretty much your friend's experience and the change that had happened or did you want to like this sounds terrible but was there any middle ground like mushrooms that you wanted to experience or was it just like hey this is a beautiful thing and let's go for it and let's see what happens how, how, how did you ultimately decide to say yes i'm in <laughs> yeah it's um you know i think I am one of those people that go either a hundred percent or zero. Dude, you're, uh, just just so you know, I'm asking. I asked that question uh, because the audience probably wants to know, but I'm I'm the same way. It's either either zero or nothing, or zero two hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and actually, I think it makes life easier, right? Because you're just like, no, I'm I'm not. That's not me. And uh, and you know, give your friend a smile and a hug and say you you enjoy that. That's uh, that's not me. And, and the other things are like, all right, let's do this. And so you know, I've I've got friends that are uh, relatively of the same bent, and so. Yeah, these two friends came over and they're like, "Let's do this." And I was like, "All right, let's let's do this." And uh, then I started reading online like the the prerequisites. And I'm like, "This is the most this is the most, you know, requirements I've ever read." And I've and I and I work for Accenture for Christ's sake. <laughs> um, and so this is like this is like an ACT um, test. I'm not ready for this. <laughs> Totally, totally. And they're like, you got to change up your diet. And, you know, I, so I took it. It was interesting because 
the three of us had very different approaches to this. You know, the two of them, one friend of mine came from South Africa and he's actually, he's a good, but he's a good buddy, but he's got, you know, a bit of a history with uh, substance abuse and, and challenges. My other buddy came from San Francisco, you know, he was um, leading a big tech company there. Uh, and obviously I was coming with my, you know, my, uh, my raggedy little backpacking clothes up through the jungle um, and into, into Peru. So we're coming at this from very different contexts. And um, so the way, so we got together like, a, you know, about a week before the retreat. And it was very interesting to observe the, yeah, the kind of the coming together of the three of us and how we approached it so differently. And, you know, my buddy with substance abuse, he was, you know, substance abuse challenges. He did not take it seriously at all. He was, you know, smoking weed the week of, and, you know, um, my other buddy was kind of not doing any of the, um, uh, so many of the cleansing things. And I was taking it completely by the book because, you know, honestly speaking, I was a little bit scared. I was like, this is a whole new thing. Like what I've read online is like, this needs to be taken super, super seriously. And so, and so I was, and then, you know, our, our, the three of us, the experiences we had were so, vastly different but they were exactly what the three of us needed at the time which was which is you know of course always the case with these sorts of powerful experiences. so um do you mind kind of going into detail what that means and obviously whatever number one uh you feel comfortable sharing about your own experience also if you don't feel comfortable sharing about your friend's experience no problem to- like honestly want to obviously want to respect that but like this is like well c- can you explain what an ayahuasca experience is to somebody who has zero, like, like, like a dummy child has no idea. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, an ayahuasca is the combination of two plants, a vine and a leaf that are brewed together over the course of three days, sometimes longer. Um, and it's a very strong psychedelic, very potent psychedelic. It's a very complex medicine. It's got about 463 compounds in it, right? So it's super complex medicine. And it's got very strong healing, growth, and shall I say, transcendent uh, capabilities um, that really can affect money, um, body, mind, heart, and soul. And they really are able to reconnect our mindy, body, mind, heart, and soul in the ways that they should be connected. Um, and so for someone who's been, you know, in the corporate world, say, and drinking a lot and perhaps not eating the best of food and not really exercising, it can be a very powerful and a very challenging uh, experience. And so for for the three of us, in fact, they, it was all a very challenging experience. And I, I can share, you know, in a nutshell, I can share my buddy's experience and then we can go a little bit deeper on my own, perhaps. Yeah. So um, for somebody who should, well, not should, but I mean, you mentioned like corporate world, kind of the eating, drinking experience, but like uh, from, from from high level perspective, based upon what you read before you got into like leading these retreats, who would be somebody who you think would be in a context to be able to take this on or ready to jump into this experience? Or I, I, I guess who, huh, who's ready for that type of experience? Because it sounds like the preparation is is a lot and you had buddies who had very different experiences. So who would you say is somebody who, you know, is, uh, is equipped or in the right mindset to even like entertain going through one of these experiences? Yeah. Um, what I always say to people is do your own research and you will know whether your soul is calling, right? So very much listen to your intuition, right? I, I mean, it's easy for the businessman in me to say, oh, absolutely, everyone should do this, but that's absolutely not right. Um, it really is a very deeply personal decision. And so when clients come to us and they say, 
oh, you know, I've had a couple of buddies that did this and they, you know, they recommended it was really great. And so I want to do it too. It's like, well, okay, I get that. I understand that that's, um, you know, a reason to do things, but this is very deep, complex, challenging spiritual work. And so we wouldn't necessarily recommend that anyone rush into that. Um, and so again, I, I'll come back to do some of your own research, not to build up your own expectations, but just to be informed in terms of you know the the, the types of challenges that can arise with these experiences. Um, and then you will know for yourself whether or not you're ready for such a big shift in your life. So um, go back for a hot second about your uh, your buddy's experience versus yours. Yeah. So first buddy who um, has a history of uh, having a little bit too much fun and, and substance abuse, um, he had very challenging uh, set of ceremonies and uh, but it was entirely physical. So he was shown absolutely no visual um, component for for his ceremonies. Um, and, you know, he, he didn't take the cleansing, uh, you know, seriously. And he had had a lot of previous experience with psychedelics, uh, whereas I had had none. And so for him, it was just a very challenging spiritual and physical and emotional experience, um, you know, throwing up a lot, uh, to be perfectly honest, um, and clearing out his body physically. Um, and so, you know, despite that sounding like not such a great experience, the result of that was that when he moved, when he got back home, he completely cleaned up his act. He, you know, he really focused in on growing his um, creative and branding marketing agency. Um, he's grown that business very successfully. He's you know married the woman of his dreams, bought a big beautiful house on the uh, on the shore of Cape Town, and so you know that's it's been a completely transformative experience for him. Even though the the ceremonies weren't um, weren't exactly the most pleasant, so. By contrast, my other buddy who, um, you know, he was a professional cricketer from age 18, moved to London, fast cars, lots of girls, all of that sort of thing. And so I thought he was going to have a very, very challenging experience. But in fact, he didn't throw up even once. And he had this completely transcendent experience with kind of retractable, retractable wings, you know, leading a pack of eagles through the sky. And I was like, wow, that's something else. And me, by contrast, I had uh, a little bit of the worst of both worlds. I had a very challenging experience on, on all levels, physical, emotional, spiritual. You know, like I said, I went into this experience as an atheist. And so it really, um, it really blew the doors open or flattened the building for me. And uh, it just gave me about 101 humbling lessons over the course of about six or seven hours. That, that's what I was going to ask. So like the actual ayahuasca experience, how long does that take? Is it a, you know, well, I, I, I guess from if you were to, well, eh, you professionally do advise people. So maybe this is a wonderful time. But um, if, if you were to recommend somebody beginning the prep time to actually going through taking the medicine to uh, when they're done with the actual like physical uh, uh, reactions to it to uh, I'm sure there's probably a, a post uh, spiritual and mental period of time to all of a sudden like you're done. How long is like start to finish is a, is a usual case? Yeah. So um, it's, <laughs> it really depends to be perfectly honest with you. So I'll give an example. We had a, we had a client from, uh, from Los Angeles recently who uh, it's been about eight weeks for her now and she's still making big improvements. Like she's still having significant emotional and mental, you know, um, uh, 
uh, clarifications and releases. Um, and so it continues to really benefit her. Like she's, you know, it's, it's not like she's stuck. She's really releasing a lot. Um, so th- that's, that's, you know, an example of, of an extended integration time. Um, for me, my first experience, you know, probably it was such a powerful experience that to be honest with you, I wasn't sufficiently prepared for um, and so I did disassociate a little bit from the experience because it was so powerful. And so I actually missed out on the overwhelming majority of the benefits that might have accrued because it was just so overwhelming and overpowering. And so, you know, for us, that's part, you know, for Behold Retreats, that's part of what we're trying to do is, is to provide the right container for people to be really adequately prepared and to provide that support during these integration periods, as I mentioned for, you know, my client from LA, that can really be extended. And so you do need some, some guidance and support to really make the most out of that because, yeah, the halo effect, you know, for some people, it's just a couple of days, but for other people, that, that halo effect can last for, um, for, for, for a very long period of time. And in fact, you know, that's ultimately what we're looking for is for people to um, successfully elevate their consciousness level. And so when we do that, the halo effect just never goes away fundamentally. It's just that you're, you're now enjoying life in a completely new so, way. So um, before we get into Beholder cheat retreats, which I want to get into, th- this was such a profound experience the first time you went through it. What happens in your life next? Yeah, so <laughs> it was an interesting it was an interesting dynamic. So I'll, I'll share with you, you know, it, it really the experience took me through my whole life and all of the things that I had done well and beautifully for others. So the ways the ways that I had touched other people's lives that improved their quality of life. And then it did the opposite. It showed me all of the ways that I had negatively affected other people. And so it was a very humbling experience. Um, and it really, you know, one of our advisors calls ayahuasca a humble soup. And I think that's such an incredible and beautiful description. It will really show you what you are and what you're not. Um, and it will guide you in the right directions, which, again, to me was such a profound experience, because at that point in time, I didn't really believe in higher order. Um, and so to have all these realizations about like, look, here's here's what's keeping you from your potential and your yeah, your your well-being. And guess what? It's it's you. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, okay, wow. Um, and so, um, and so, and so, yeah, for me, you know, the period that followed was, um, was overwhelming. I just remember flipping back to the notes that I had taken so many times and being like, I don't even know what to make of all of this. And so, you know, coming out of that retreat experience, my buddy who felt like at the time he felt a little bit, um, like he had been shortchanged, right? He had traveled all the way from South Africa. And so he's like, we got to go out tonight. You know, we got a party um, after this retreat. And I was like, I, I really can't, you know, it's, uh, it's such a powerful experience. And so we tried to go out for a little bit and kind of support him because he needed to blow off some steam. But, you know, again, honestly speaking, I didn't benefit from the experience um, in a sustainable way. And that's that's so common that people go and they have a really powerful experience that teaches them a whole bunch of lessons, but they're not able to meaningfully integrate those lessons to the quality of life. And so that's really what happened to me is that, you know, for the couple of weeks that followed, I remember flipping back to these notes over and over again, but I really just didn't, I didn't and couldn't make sense of it. Um, And so I just kind of continued on with my travels through South America. You know, I think as, as you were saying, you know, this, this work is really about deepening our connection with the, with source, right. Regardless of religion. Um, and that's what's, you know, one of the, the, the very nice things about these experiences. It's like we can all say, oh, now I get it. Right. And, and then and then, you know, religion comes in when someone writes things down. And so 
um, you know, the, these, these are very, very powerful and therapeutic experiences. And I think, you know, what, what you've described there is, is, is amazing. And, and, you know, we can feel that the universe is conspiring in our favor when we have these experiences, right? And, and to know that and to feel that and to, and to, it just allows us to look at the universe in such a different way. It's like, wow, this thing is really bringing me the lessons that I need to learn. Um, and that, that opportunity is there for me in every moment, in every day. Yeah. And I, I, I guess that's, you know, I, I share that to say that like, um, that's one of the reasons why obviously I wanted to have a conversation with you about because you do this. This is not a, hey, do you want to go take a bunch of drugs and go have this, you know, cool experiences? And what does that look like? But it's more, you know, there's probably a select group of people who are actually interested in some of the healing work that can be done with this and looking for various different ways. And with that being said, I, I, I would highly recommend that anybody who's, you know, depressed or anxiety, like obviously, you know, seek counseling, seek therapy, go through that experience. I, I, I don't want to be even close to saying go away from that. But it was one of those things that I myself, I, I've also had seven concussions. So I don't know how much that's factored into things. But um, it's, it, it's one of those that like, I truly like had just such a beautiful experience going through that, that you know, I, I don't, I don't, not to, to say very carefully, I don't feel the need to ever go through that again, just because I felt like it really, really helped. And I, it was eye opening and it was awesome. So anyways, that's, that's my, my spiel on that, but. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, um, and what I always say to people is, you know, as I mentioned before, is listen to your intuition, right? And your intuition always knows, what is what is best for you, um, and the universe is always providing us signs to um, decide what we do, what we do and don't do. Exactly right. So enough about my my deal on that. Um, so what ultimately led you to starting Behold Retreats? Yeah. So my journey in terms of a powerful transcendent experience, humbling, full of lessons, and then life returns to normal. That is the normal story. <laughs> so most people, um, they go on one of these retreats and then life returns to normal. And then they do you remember think, real, real some quick of on the that, Do you think that's true? Um, so uh, uh, it, do you think that's true among just your retreats or just retreats in general? Because I've also found that true with like mission trips of like you go on these very spiritual, amazing mission trips. You deeply impact some area in the world that needs help and uh, it's, it's, you feel closer to God. And then all of a sudden 10 days later, you're kind of back to normal life. So like, I found that to be true in mission trips. Yeah. I found that to be true at like leadership conferences. So do you think that's, 100%. yeah, anyway, so that, I guess I, rather than the question, I'm more valid, val, you know, uh, further agreeing with your point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and I think it's, you know, whether people are going to these big leadership rah, rah conferences where some, you know, some uh, person shakes everyone up on stage and, you know, and then life returns to normal. So it turns out that, you know, we're emotional beings where and, and we can have very powerful emotional experiences and spiritual experiences where we feel more connected and more vibrant. And then it's so easy to slip back um, because change is hard, right? We have these entrenched neural pathways that have been developed over decades. And so to let go of identity, to let go of those limiting beliefs, to let go of those lower level emotions like shame and guilt and fear and apathy and pride and envy and scarcity, all of that, let go of all of that stuff is hard work. Um, and so we have, you know, it's, it's super, super interesting. You know, the science has shown that 
when people have these experiences, there's, there's, um, they, they ask a questionnaire. Um, and there's some great science on ayahuasca that, uh, that's been done. And the first thing is, has your joy of life increased? When they ask the question, it's like, yes, their joy of life is substantially increased. Okay, fantastic. Number two, has your um, spiritual connection deepened? Yes. They ask a bunch of questions. It's like, yes, unequivocally, my spiritual connection has deepened. The third category of questions that they ask is, have you been able to remove toxicity? Right. So that's in like how you think of yourself, how you think of others, judgment, um, fears, all of those sorts of things. And what's interesting is that there's basically no movement. And so there tends to be a recalibration that happens between these lower level emotions ultimately pull down your your temporarily elevated emotional state post retreat. uh, And then you just gravitate back towards your behavior and your thinking and your limiting beliefs, et cetera. Now, that's what's happening for everyone. So like these days, tens of thousands of people, maybe even hundreds of thousands of people are traveling for these legal retreats, right? In Costa Rica, Mexico, Peru, Netherlands, blah, 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 the list goes on. And then, you know, they've had this very powerful experience and then they're skipping the mental and emotional work, right? So the ego is bypassing the actual work to be done and showing you God or whatever it is, um, you know, showing you source, showing you the light, whatever it is we want to call it. Um, and then and then you're coming and then you're coming back to your daily life and everything's returning to normal. And so what happens is that in that context, people are going, you know, there was something there. I remember I was getting taught some powerful stuff that I needed to integrate um, for my retreat. And so then people go on another retreat and then they return to normal. They go on another retreat and they return to normal. And that really perpetuates, which is, I think I was there for three and a half years in that cycle before I had a major breakthrough. Um, so a lot of people are are stuck in that cycle. So is that, um, do you think that's because there's not enough pre-work done? Do you think that's because there's not enough follow-through work done? Do you think that's because there's a diminishing return of what the plant medicine does? What, what do you think actually is like the root attestment to that? Because it sounds like that's a that's a very common experience. Yeah. So what I came, to, what I've come to recognize over the years is that there's actually many factors that play into this and they're, they're gen, generally underappreciated. So the first is that it's pretty much impossible for the untrained eye to know what good looks like. So I was spending uh, tens of thousands of dollars and weeks on end over those three and a half years at all the best five-star retreat centers. Now it turns out that those five-star retreat centers are not necessarily the best places to go, which is which is hilarious. And we can speak a little bit more about that. But um, the the reality is that you just don't know what good looks like. And now if you go to any of the retreat aggregator websites, what you can see, and the, the numbers have exploded, right? Like five years ago, there was about 15 retreat centers. Now there's about 250 retreat centers. So the numbers have just exploded in this space. Um, and what that tells you is that the most of the people have only opened their retreat center in the last couple of years, which probably means that they're not the experts that you're looking for. Um, and now all of these retreat centers on these retreat aggregator websites are rated as five stars. So what does that tell you? Like if you went to Airbnb and everything was five stars, you would be like, OK, this thing fundamentally isn't serving its purpose. So, I mean, uh, help me understand the sudden surge of these retreat centers, do you think it's pop culture of Joe Rogan and uh, Tim Ferriss and all these, you know, guys, gals who are all of a sudden popular saying they went through this and now people with money are saying, yeah, I want to try this. Or what do you think ultimately is like, uh, aside from the healing version of it, but it sounds like it's no longer a hidden gem to go to, you know, Peru accidentally on, on a trip in Argentina. Like what, what do you think has, has created such a I don't know, explosive growth of these sort of retreat centers, be it commercially or not. 
Yeah, I, mean, I think it's it is it's the you know this there's so much happening in this space at the moment, um, and so. I think it is popularization. You know, people are coming back with these very transformative stories. And, and don't get me wrong, right? Over those three and a half years, I was making a small amount of progress. I felt more productive. I felt more empathetic. You know, I started meditating. I was making slow progress, but it was such slow progress relative to once I found experts. So I'll share a few more of the dynamics that play out here because it's it's important that um, that that any listeners understand. The second is, as you were saying, people are skipping the mental and emotional work and. Unfortunately, a retreat is just fundamentally insufficient to rewire those decades of entrenched neural patterns, right? Like we are, we, we spent a long time becoming ourselves. So to think that you can spend a week to kind of rewire all of that is a little bit overly optimistic. Well, yeah, it's also, it's also dynamic- just society loves quick fixes. And so let me pay 10 grand and go somewhere beautiful and let me just fix it all, right? Exactly, exactly. And it just it doesn't work like that. So um, the third is that it's this is an unregulated ecosystem, right? And there's no standards for safety, quality and care. And so there's a lot of horror stories out there. And I, and I, you know, so so I would encourage people to really make sure they do a lot of research before choosing an experience. And then, and then the the last two dynamics are kind of related, which is fundamentally, there's a short supply of practitioners who are able to guide people to other level to higher levels of consciousness, right? Um, there's actually very few practitioners themselves who have been able to sustain higher levels of consciousness. And so they're not really able to guide other people towards place to places where they haven't been themselves. Now, what's super common is to have these transcendent experiences and again, land back where you are. And a lot of people are doing this, these experiences in huge groups, right? I hear of places where they do it in 20, 50, even 100 people doing this all at the same time. And that's how the retreat center has been set up, which is completely at odds with what the science is telling us works best. The science is telling us do this. You know, the best way to do this, if you can afford it, is privately. You want to have one or two people just facilitating your deep experience. You don't want to be hearing other people throwing up around you. That's like, that's completely. <laughs> I don't care what you're doing. I don't like, want to hear like, anybody throwing up around me, no matter what. <laughs> yeah. So hold on, yeah. Walk, walk me through that. So is that, I mean, so basically the whole concept of that is saying like, okay, so boil it down like you're talking to an idiot. Um, you don't want to go through eye-opening therapy with, you know, a hundred other people sitting in the room. You actually want to do it just you and one other person and diving deep and being vulnerable and being safe and that whole thing. I mean, is it, is it that simple? Yeah. I mean, there, there, a lot of, I don't want, I don't want to boil down the, the magic sauce to it by any means, but that, that, that'd be my no. interpretation of it. Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of people are initially drawn towards a group setting. So if, if and a lot of people start their work there, right? Like I did. Uh, and so that, you know, I would encourage people to seek out a smaller group. Um, and then often once they see the potential and the benefits that can come from this work, then they move into the private. But, you know, if people are, you know, some people are a little bit wiser, I might say, and say, and, and so they immediately gravitate towards a private experience first. And I would say, you know, Good on you. Yeah, if that's uh, if that's what feels right for you, that's uh, that's a wise decision. Yeah, makes sense. So, um, the people that seek these out in the masses uh, are a lot of these, in your opinion, first coming, and maybe not to you, but uh, the the industry in general, if you will. Do you believe that these are? Um, are these people looking for quick fixes? Are these people, you know, I just went through a divorce or my business failed or life's hard and I'm looking for a quick fix? Or do you think a lot of these are actually like deeply capable of kind of going through this work to begin with? Because I, yeah, I, I, I yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll start the question there and then I'll go, I'll, I'll expand. 
Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's kind of um, three overarching motivations. So one is people come for healing. The second is people come for growth or creativity. Um, and then the third is deepening the spiritual connection, right? So, you know, I would say the typical, the typical client for us is between 30 and 60. Um, and there's generally something specific that they're looking for, right? So, but the variety, I mean, that's, that's what's so fascinating about this work is that the variety of things that can be treated through this work is just so vast, right? So we get clients with autoimmune disorders. We get clients with fibromyalgia. We get clients with, you know, we don't do acute cases, but we get clients with, um, you know, depression and anxiety. We get clients who just want to know themselves better. We want clients, we get clients who are seeking clarity in terms of their next stage in life. We get clients that are, as you shared, you know, in that transition state, you know, maybe post uh posted divorce or, you know, finally taking some time out of the corporate world. So we get clients from all walks um, with all different types of motivations. And what's what's really exciting about this work is that, you know, I hate to to, to kind of frame it as sort of a silver bullet, but it really the, the range of applications is just absolutely tremendous. And, you know, one of our advisors was sharing with me that a clinical trial has just been approved for DMT and stroke victims. So as they're going to be loading stroke victims into the ambulance, they're actually going to begin to give them subperceptual dose, doses of DMT to increase neuroplasticity and therefore, you know, limit any any subsequent damage in the brain, which I was just like, wow, that's now that's something. Um, is it is uh, for behold retreats, which actually we need to have you explain uh, what exactly you do now. But um, is it predominantly ayahuasca or what are all the different, uh, I guess, medicines that you guys work with when you when you go through these experiences or put people through retreats? And maybe, 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 yeah, so maybe you, you're welcome to lead. <laughs> that, that, that was a blunt way of going about it. But maybe you're, feel free to tee up of what exactly you guys do uh, as far as the retreats go. We're trying to do with behold retreats is really to bring together the diverse elements that are necessary for people to get the most out of this work um, and so that's really been based upon my own mistakes over the many years uh, and also now making sure that you know we we are bringing the high level of expertise that people require in order to really benefit and to sustain an elevated level of consciousness right so all of the science that's out there in my mind is what comes as a byproduct of an elevated state of consciousness. So all of the benefits to life satisfaction, to well-being, to mood and behavior, to um, consciousness, to all, all of these sorts of cognition, clarity of thinking, life, uh, life purpose, all of those things. They're just a function of uh, an elevated state of consciousness. And so that's really ultimately the goal that we're, 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 we're leading to. Now, what we do is we do three weeks before a retreat, a one week immersive, all-inclusive retreat, and then three weeks after a retreat. And that really allows us to bring together, you know, the, the mental and emotional work. There's guided self-inquiry, so you can really get to know yourself better and ask yourself a bunch of questions. There's, you know, healing, um, there's healing recordings, uh, on there, which I would have rolled my eyes out some years ago, but they really do work. There's meditations uh, and then there's weekly Q&A calls where you know we, we answer any questions and and uh, you know 
any concerns that come up for people over the course of a week, kind of understand what they're dealing with. Uh, and then some one-to-one coaching calls as well, where we really, you know, go deep with people and really help them understand where they're at and, and help them get some breakthroughs, even preferably uh, ahead of retreat. And so we teach these kind of metacognition tools and emotional release tools so that people can actually begin to do the work ahead of a retreat so that when they go into the retreat, they have all the tools and everything that they need to get the most out of the ceremonial work. Uh, and then really we, we guide people in their integration. So, you know, these are very powerful transformative experiences. So to make sure that they are, um, they are getting the most to the improvements to quality of everyday life um, once they're returning home. So I know we talked about this uh, before the call, but I'm more than welcome uh, to, or I'm, I'm more than open to uh, take on a few of, I, I guess, maybe some of the questions that you may ask to give examples to listeners of what this work would be like, even without the the plant medicine, but kind of what some of the pre-work looks like. So uh, if you want to go through that, I'd be more than happy to. We don't have to go into all of them, but uh, if, if you want to maybe give a couple examples and we're happy to you know take that on and walk through that. Yeah, sure. Um, so the way that we typically start with clients is to ask them, you know, imagine that you'd come through our program and that in three months time, you've met all of the goals that um, that we set upon to work on together, set about to work on together. Like, what would that what would that look like for you? Um, so I think the first set, I would walk into an experience um, like this with a couple ideas. Number one would be I recognize that I have some, uh, probably some hidden depression and anxiety, but because I uh, am a wannabe CEO and executive and want to be probably more important than I actually care to be, um, I have a certain set of probably uh, goals that I have mishit or expectations on myself that I've failed that I'm not able to probably to articulate, but are hidden and are there. And so mm-hmm. I, I think work like this, I'd want to know, number one, would I be capable, whether the pre-work or the actual experience itself, would I be able to articulate what maybe where I missed or where I'm missing my own set of expectations or I'm failing that's not accurate? So I'd want to know maybe what some of those things are. Um, but I think also like, truth be told, I, and as I mentioned, I've, I've had some, you know, small brain trauma with seven different concussions and mm-hmm. uh, whether I actually have some ac- actual brain, uh, you know, memory faults or not, I'd love to, you know, are there things that I'm missing from my past or are there, you know, uh, areas that just due to pride that I've brushed under the rug that I'm not capable mm-hmm. of actually experiencing. And um, I'd love to say, if nothing else, I'm not even looking to solve those, but I at least love to know that they're there so I can work on, uh, you know, fixing those or addressing those or being content with them later on in life. So I think that's probably where I would start. Uh, I don't know if that's accurate or in line or even fair, but. Yeah. Um, it, it, that, I mean, that makes sense. What I would, what I would say is just imagine yourself three months later and what's different. What, what is really, really good look like for you? Better understanding of probably past trauma. Yeah. So better, but but that's but that's 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 anchoring towards the limitations that currently exist. Let's think about how that would manifest for you. Would it be more joy, more love, more peace? Would it be differences in your relationships, your health, physically, mentally, emotionally? Try and kind of frame it from a very positive perspective. 
No, that's a fair, that's, that's a good way of saying it. So you're saying like, you know, fill the glass up twice as full rather than twice as empty sort of thing. Um, I would say, uh, yeah, I I would say probably more internal joy with myself. I would say Mm -hmm. not spending so much of my goals in my, you know, I've got a lot of energy and excitement and, uh, I, I work hard. Um, but not having that be because I I'm incompetent, but having that be because I'm excited and I'm focused and I'm, you know, so joyful of what the future mm-hmm. holds rather than mm-hmm. I'm trying so very hard to, uh, you know, work hard enough that I feel like I'm competent enough. So I, I, I think flip it towards, I've got a skill to work hard and I've got a lot of energy to do so. And I think what I would want is that that energy to be pointed towards, you know, joy of this world rather than trying to prove that I'm, you yeah. know, worth it, I guess is probably yeah. the best way to point that. And, and look, you, you touched on such a key point there, Matt. And this is in fundamentally, most leaders are operating from a place of I'm not good enough. And I was there for years and I didn't even see it. it it's so ingrained in our culture and it's so norm. It's so normalized that most people are driven to succeed because there's this feeling of inner lack. And this isn't just, you know, this isn't just you and I, this is how the world is being run. Um, the people who are in control of this world are people who can never feel like they're never good enough. Um, and that is, I think a large part of what, you know, what breeds a lot of the dysfunction that we see today is that people don't feel like they're good enough. Um, And so that's really, you know, that's fundamental to this work. You know, a lot of the clients, the breakthroughs that we're able to give them really relate to, you know, what's described as the self-love experience. And that's when you just unequivocally and absolutely and entirely love yourself. And that's just such a beautiful moment when we can bring clients to that place. Yeah, it makes sense. And then it's one of those things that I, uh, through some of like the, uh, the, I, I have a couple executive coaches that I, I work with professionally and I also have gone through counseling myself and I know that to be true. <laughs> I'm not always good at living it out, but I, I know that that's, uh, it's one of those things that if you can get to a place where it's no longer, I'm trying to prove that I'm valuable or I'm trying to prove that I'm good enough, but it's now I'm spending this much time, effort, energy, focus on, truly trying to make the world a better place or others, you know, have environments that I didn't have or whatever, whatever, whatever the drive may be that's healthy. But I, I know it's there. I will be the first to admit that I'm not always good at living it out daily. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, it, it's, um, it's, there, there's mind stuff to be done, right. In order to get there. But then what's really exciting about this work is the embodiment aspect where every cell of your body, I mean, there's incredible intelligence in our cells. Right. And so I think, I think Michael Jordan is a great example of someone who embodied the knowledge of what he was, right? Like there was just, you could see him on the court and there was just no question that he was going to do what it took to win. And and that's, he was telling himself that in such a powerful way that everyone else also believed him, <laughs> which is, which is what I think this, this work really represents is that we're bringing people into their full power. Um, and uh, when that's done, when that's done well, that's super exciting because this is this life is not a zero sum game, right? It's not that um, you know sports is a specific dynamic where someone's got to win and someone's got to lose, but that's not the case in in general terms, right? We are abundant on this planet, and uh, we we live in this kind of mind frame of uh, limiting, you know, limitations and scarcity, but that's just fundamentally not our reality. And so this work represents bringing people into their full power so that more and more people can be completely abundant and we can accelerate our evolution collectively in that direction. 
So let's say you're hypothetically talking to a uh, young uh, startup founder who's trying to make a difference in the world, probably has some past trauma, motivated to, uh, well, at least at least acknowledges that uh, that individual has some faults, but motivated to make some changes in the best way possible. What is the best way for them to get started in some of this, uh, not, not only the retreats itself, but some of the work and deep consciousness that you're talking about? What would you recommend them going about doing? Again, I guess all hypothetically, of course. Yeah, well, I mean, I think um, for for people who are attracted to plant medicine, uh, then I would say you know start doing your research and begin to develop and form some of your own opinions and, and really understand your your own motivations deeply. Um, for those who are not, I would I would help. I would probably um, ask them to consider meditation. Um, you know, 20 minutes is very challenging um, at a time. You know, people who haven't meditated, they try and they say, oh, that's, I can't do this. It's not for me. That's not right. It's just that you're not dedicating yourself quite sufficiently. Um, now, what's what's a really scary commitment is to do a 10-day silent meditation. And those are profound, life-changing experiences, uh, obviously substance-free. So, you know, if people are not... Walk me through. What, what does that actually mean? I actually don't know what that means. Uh, yeah, it's... Uh, it's no joke. So, um, 10 day silent meditation retreat. Um, I would recommend to people if they're going to try something like this, look at Vipassana, which is, a, uh, an ancient, uh, modality of meditation it's very powerful. Um, and also, uh, kind of, uh, woo woo free to a great extent. So it's, it doesn't, you know, require that you prescribe to any particular faith or anything like that. Um, and it's, and it's also, it's, it's, uh, it's quote unquote free. And at the end of the experience, you pay in alignment with the value that you gained out of the experience so that others can also gain from the experience. If you thought it was powerful, which I really like that model, it's not appropriate for plant medicine, which for reasons I won't go into, but, um, these, these meditation retreats are very powerful experiences. You meditate generally between 10 to 14 hours a day um, and you're sat in meditation. It's completely silent. You're not allowed to speak to anyone for the entire 10 days. Uh, vegetarian food um, twice a day and uh, there's a lot of meditation on hand. And uh, when we do that, we come to bear witness of, the, of our own insanity actually. Um, and so, you know, this thing called the default mode network in our brain, the research has shown that we have between 12 and 60,000 thoughts per day. Um, just about 100% of those thoughts are egoic thoughts, which means that they're about I, me and my. 95% um, of those thoughts are repetitive. So they're not productive. They're just the same uh, short circuits on loop. Uh, and 85% of thoughts are negative. So think about that for a second. It's just like, wow. Okay. So there's a lot of negative self-talk going on in the mind, like a lot of it for the overwhelming majority. Now, Vipassana, you get the opportunity to remove all of the distractions that you have in your everyday life and just sit with yourself and bear witness to your own mind losing its own mind because you cannot possibly meditate. Um, you cannot keep your focus for even 10 seconds for even 20 seconds. And that changes over the course of 10 days. You begin to train your overactive monkey mind and begin to take control back, which is the most incredibly empowering thing that anyone can do for themselves. Yeah, I love that. Is that, um, so practically speaking, is that an experience you go through in your own home? Is that actually you go through that with a retreat with you? Is that uh, different places around the world? How, like if somebody actually wanted to go through that, what's, what, what's the literally like, I want to sign up today. What's that look like? 
uh, it's called dhamma.org d-h-a-m-m-a.org is uh, is the organization i would recommend i mean there's there's different vipassana retreats all around the world but that's the organization i would recommend uh people go through because that's the that's the real deal you'll also probably find ones that are like four day or five day or seven day nah, I, 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 do the 10 days it's really what's required to, um, to yeah. get the most. love that so, Jonathan, we, we could probably talk for another three, four, five hours, and we'll definitely get you back around too. But um, w- one of the things I want to ask you in all this is that um, two, twofold question, and it's, it's, it's my favorite question on the planet, but I'm going to ask a pre-up to it. The first question is, like, ultimately with the work that you're doing, um, you've reached a point where you're, you're, you're not seeking to uh, build your own kingdom. You're seeking to actually help and improve other people's lives. And so what's ultimately the impact that you want to have in the world? And then I guess the second question would be, you know, out of all this, what, what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning and keeps you driving to do this? Yeah. You know, it's so, it's so motivating to hear client stories, right? Um, it's, we've, we've been obviously some, had some challenges with COVID, but what keeps us super motivated is to hear those clients when they come back from retreat and they, you know, rejoin the next week's coaching call and, you know, just to hear all of the things they've been able to let go of and to hear the excitement in their voice of what they now realize about themselves, you know, what things like, wow, I, I never realized that I'm not my body. Wow. I've never realized that I can really love myself. You know, wow. I, I had this, I experienced the interconnectivity of all things or wow, I experienced God consciousness or I experienced universal love or, you know, there's, or, or the spiritual, you know, life experience. So there's all these, you know, transcendent spiritual experiences that, that people have. And so to hear them come back onto the calls and share that with the team, I mean, that's for us, that's, that's the, that's the amazing, that's the amazing thing, right? Um, Now, in terms of, um, in terms of broader goals and motivations, um, as we kind of, um, get behold retreats in good in a good place here. I actually want to spend more of my time consulting governments on this subject because, you know, consulting obviously is my background. Governments are looking at this subject kind of with, you know, big eyes a little bit and not really knowing what to make of it. And so they actually need people to suit up and come and, and educate, you know, go and educate them on this topic, not with like legalization in mind, but just with, you know, education and, and the government's interests in mind so that they can really understand what this work represents. I love that. So for anybody that wants to follow along with your your uh, journey personally, but also maybe actually pursue an opportunity of going on one of these retreats, what is the best way for them to either get in touch with you or follow along uh, on Behold Retreats? Yeah, so um, our website is uh, www.behold-retreats.com. Um, if this sounds like something potentially interesting, come through and apply and we'll have a chat um, and see whether uh, see whether it we're, we're a good fit for one another. You know, we've got amazing retreats in Costa Rica, Mexico, Peru, Netherlands, uh, really, you know, life-changing experience. And for us, it's, you know, this is spiritual work. We're not predominantly commercially motivated. We just want to send people on the most life-changing experiences um, and uh, help them avoid all those mistakes that I've made for so many years. Love that. Jonathan, thank you so much for being a guest on this podcast. Is there anything else you want to leave the audience with? No, I think uh, I love the work that you're doing, Matt. I think it's so important to, um, yeah, to to help people have the uh, have the opportunity to be seen and to be heard, and not to have to cross go all the way across town for uh, for an interview and then and to get a no. <laughs> I love what love I love that. what you're doing. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, Jonathan, seriously, thank you so much for being a uh, guest on this podcast. Thank you, Matt. Aloha. 
You just listened to an amazing episode on the Matt Baxter show. It had nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with the guests that I have and the stories that we get to tell and the smack talking we get to have. So if you enjoyed this episode or any of the other episodes that you've listened to, feel free to subscribe on Apple Music, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast. Check us out at themattbaxtershow.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Matt C. Baxter, Twitter, or Facebook as well, too. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, whether it's through an email on the website or whether it's through any of the social platforms. I do my best to get back to people as soon as I can. But thank you again for listening. I hope you enjoy. Feel free to send feedback in any way. And don't be afraid to share the Matt Baxter Show. We're very excited to have you as a listener and hope you continue to listen as well. Thanks a ton. Bye-bye.